Scishow Tangents is brought to you by Shopify. Hank, when you started your career as <laughs> the internet science man, was opening an online store something that you were really thinking that hard about or something you thought you'd do in a billion years? I was uh, making a shop before I was the internet science man. Oh, what? That was the first thing I did. I was that first. Wow, I got to learn my Hank history. How did that go for you? <laughs> Good. I'll, here's what I'll tell you. Like the the the... The part where we start selling a thing and you get to see the number go up is so exciting. And uh, when it's just like you uh, by yourself, you got to be careful. But luckily, (laughs) Shopify has all kinds of little tools to help you with that, to help you with increasing conversions, to help you with managing orders, with customer support, with all of the stuff. Uh, Because it's a, you know. I don't know. It feels like the industry standard. And so there are all kinds of plugins that you can use to make your Shopify work for you in particular. That's right. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from vlogging in your parents' basement to treading the boards of Carnegie Hall. Now, it was my basement. It was my (laughs) basement of my own home that I was renting. (laughs) Downstairs of. (laughs) If you say so. From your first sale to your one millionth, Shopify is here to help you grow. And they've got a proven track record, my friends. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and powers entrepreneurs in 175 countries. They have, as Hank mentioned, the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they have award-winning customer service because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tangents, all lowercase tangents. Go to shopify.com slash tangents now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S, all lowercase. And welcome to SciShow Tangents, that lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. I am joined, as always, by Stefan Chin. I'm here, as always. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Great energy so far. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> hey, guys. What's what your <laughs> Stefan, what's your tagline? Uh, homeward Bound. Mm, I wish I was. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam Hank. Schultz is also here. How are you? Good. What's your tagline? <laughs> Poetry Crime. Poetry Whoa. crime. I did one of those this week. <laughs> <laughs> Sari Riley is also with us. Yep. How are you doing? Still with us. Still with us. <laughs> What's your tagline? Need a hug, need a nap. Ooh. Oh, that'd be nice. And I'm Hank Green. I've had a lovely week. Summertime is good and it's sort of like tailing off into where it's nice and cool in the mornings <sighs> and I love it. Summer but, here lasts three weeks. I know. It's I quick. Hate it. But there hasn't been any ba- bad fires. So it's true. we're all. Counting our blessings. Yeah, we're in bonus summertime now. Bonus. And my tagline is pants, but with pockets. What a concept. (laughs) (laughs) Every week here on SciShow Tangents, we get together to try to one-up, amaze, and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, but we're also keeping score. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but judging by previous conversations, we won't be great at that. So if the rest of us deems the tangent unworthy, we can force someone to give up a Hank Buck. So tangent with care. Now, as always, we introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem this week from Sam Schultz. Whose woods these are, I think I know. I will check my Google Maps, though, just to see if I'm getting near. 
the pizza place called Domino's. <laughs> a satellite far up from here does through its little camera pier between the woods and frozen lake to show a path from which not to veer. My foot now removed from the brake, my car lurches forward with a shake. The only other sounds the beep of my phone telling me which left to take. The woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I got two pizza pies real cheap. And miles to go before I eat. And miles to go before I eat. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely that a poetry oh, crime. Yeah. <laughs> is Robert Frost going to burst out of the ground yeah. and get me? <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Our topic for the day is navigation, which is how you get from a place to a different place. And mm-hmm. we've been doing that for a long time to try and not get lost. And I think that like originally you were just like, follow the river until the this landmark and then yeah. do this. And go over two wow. mountains and you'll be there. But now we have all kinds of very complicated and excellent systems to do it with. So we get to talk. Maybe I don't know what we're going to talk about. Maybe we'll talk about old ways of doing it, new ways of doing it. But, but do we have a definition of what navigation is or do we all just sort of know what it is? I think you covered it. Just yeah. humans finding their way different places and gradually using more technology to do it. So yeah. looking at landmarks, then looking at stars, looking at animals. Looking well, at animals? Yeah. Expand on that one. What does that mean? Well, animals can navigate. Oh, like looking at how animals navigate. Not like, yeah. take a left at the rhino. <laughs> <laughs> like, it moves. As soon as you see a bird, <laughs> like five more steps, that's where the treasure is. Thank you, by the way, to June Fruit for suggesting this topic. Yeah, thank you. We have a whole list of viewer topics that we're going to be going through in the next couple months. And now it's time for One of our panelists has prepared three science facts, but only one of them is real. The other panelists have to figure out, either by deduction or wild guess, which is the true fact. If we do, we get a Hank Buck. If we don't, Stefan will get our Hank Buck, because you are the one giving us the facts. Hit me, brother. Uh, So in a city where the streets are aligned to cardinal directions, Mm -hmm. people seem to be fairly good at knowing which way is north. But which of these three things is a real fact about a pedestrian's ability to orient themselves in a city where the streets are not aligned with cardinal directions? Number one, pedestrians asked to simply point towards north had a hard time doing so because their guesses were based on the orientation of the roads, which again were not aligned with the cardinal directions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this happened even when they were indoors. Number two. That makes sense. Pedestrians who had been tested to have higher than normal sensitivity to magnetic fields were able to relatively accurately orient themselves northwards even when blindfolded and indoors. No. That okay, keep going. Like bullshit to me. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, the pedestrians were much better able to pick out cardinal directions when they were indoors and not being influenced by the roads nearby. And so they could just focus on their mental maps, which had a north-up orientation. So the three facts we have. Pedestrians have a hard time pointing north when they're in, in not north, south, east, west roads, even when they're inside. Two, people who have higher than normal sensitivity to magnetic fields. I'm not even going to finish that one. (laughs) Or three, pedestrians were better at picking out cardinal directions when they were inside without being distracted by the roads. One and two seem completely possible to me. They seem like inverses of each other almost, right? Yeah, kind of. Direction to me means nothing when I walk inside. That's north? That's north. north? Yeah. He, he seems to be pointing north. I, <laughs> <I'm> pointing north. <laughs> I agree that that's north. <laughs> okay. I mean, this building is in a north-south orientation, yeah. so it's pretty easy. Well, I don't know why. It's not my building. <laughs> <laughs> you don't picture... I picture a little me 
kind of like a Google Maps person yes. dragged around by the collar of their shirt being uh-huh. plopped down outside. So like if I were to walk uh-huh. upstairs, plop down outside. Mm. Missoula doesn't have a north-south grid in this part of town, does it? Uh, oh, yeah, I guess it does. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, right here, I'm pretty sure. The slant streets are no. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And then things get a little weird. There's a couple weird places. Yeah. I'm not good at this because, like, I don't have a lot of experience with that. In Florida, there were no grids at all. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> it was just wigglies. <laughs> the roads were made by alligators just walking around. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. Children on alligators. Oh. Back when they let the children run free. Yeah, they the didn't keep them days. safe all the time. They <laughs> just put them on an alligator and had them ride around. Yeah, slapped alligator's ass and it just <laughs> runs off. <laughs> That's all they have fun. <laughs> Do humans sense the magnetic field? Is no. This a thing? I can't imagine humans being able to sense magnets. But if Stefan found the one study on the whole planet that's like, we held a magnet near their brain and they jittered. Some animals can sense yeah. it. Right? Yes. Definitely animals some animals can. Can. Can any mammals? From my understanding, and there's probably a scientist out there that specifically studies magneto sensations. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what the word is in Mm -hmm. animals. We have an understanding that some animals like birds use the magnetic field to navigate because Mm -hmm. if you remove that in some way, I don't know what experiments they do. They put like little tinfoil hats on them or something. (laughs) Uh, Then they stop being able to navigate as well. But we're not sure what mechanism enables them to like what in their cells Right. Is a magnetic particle or a magnetic reactive particle? Yeah, they seem to, like, different organisms have, like, clusters of magnetite inside of them that they can Mm -hmm. find. We don't know exactly how their cells are able to sense what those clusters of magnetite are doing. Mm -hmm. But some bats do have that. So. Okay. It's a thing. Okay. Which is wild. Well, I'm going to go with the last one. That's harder to tell inside which direction, right? Is that what it is? Or is it easier? No, that's that's easier. I'm going with the harder one. Okay. The first one? Yeah. Because I can't do it. I'm going to go with pedestrians were better at picking out the cardinal directions inside when they weren't distracted by the roads. Number three. I'm going to go with Sam and say it's harder because I'm also very directionally challenged. And mm. so, like, anything will throw me off. It was the first one. It was. Uh, Is that the one I guess? Yeah, yeah. Sam is not only <laughs> having a little trouble with where North is, but what? <laughs> also, what, yeah, exactly. Which there have been previous studies that sort of suggested that our mental maps are oriented north facing up and it sort of made sense to me because like that's how we look at google maps and like video is so prevalent these days Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so that seemed intuitive but the researchers in this study thought that that might be because the testing in previous studies was done in cities where the grids of the roads are aligned Mm -hmm. with the cardinal directions and so they specifically tested in a city where they were off axis And so they took participants to different, like, locations on the sidewalk around town and, like, had them point north. And most people were able to point within, like, a 180-degree semicircle. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So it was, like, like, sort of more north than south. But it was kind of all over the place. And, like, the aggregate answers were, like, all around the circle. Like, people Mm -hmm. were all over the place. Um, But... Uh, But it looked like people were using the roads to orient themselves. So it would be like, I know that Main Street kind of faces like northeast, southeast. So I'm going to orient myself that way and then turn left a little bit. And that's probably north. So that was the outside thing. And then inside, they were told to imagine that they were facing in a particular direction and then indicate what direction a, a different landmark was from there. So like you're at the coffee shop facing the statue of... Aristotle or whatever there's a statue of 
And then in what direction is City Hall Mm. or something like that, like known landmarks. And they found that people's guesses happened more quickly and were more accurate when the initial orientation that you were asked to imagine was aligned with the roads, not aligned with cardinal directions. Hmm. And so so they think that people's maps are more aligned based on the roads, exactly. which sort of makes sense. Yeah. But I thought that like over time, like you living in an area like you'd and looking at Google Maps, like you'd sort of get a sense of like how your city's oriented. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like length of time that people were living there didn't really matter. Mm. They gave people a questionnaire to see like how good their sense of direction was in general. And like people who were, had a good sense of direction did slightly better, but it wasn't that big of an effect. That's what I want to know. Because people are always like, I'm so bad at direct or mm. like I have an amazing sense of. And I'm like, I bet the effect <laughs> is small. Mm-hmm. I bet the difference between somebody who's just a total loser at trying to get places <laughs> and somebody like who th- or who thinks that about themselves. Sure. It's like people who are like, I'm tone deaf. I'm like, maybe, but probably you just like aren't as, you, you know, like you're slightly like worse. You're slightly worse than average. <laughs> yeah. And the full picture of like how we navigate and orient is probably much more complicated. Right. And like we use different mental models in different situations for different tasks. Well, I think, for example, with Missoula, I know North better because people refer to parts of Missoula by the cardinal direction. So Very it's like, helpful. this is the north mm-hmm. side, that's the south side. But mm-hmm. I don't think I could do like I lived in Boston for four years, but I don't think I could do that city the same way because right. no one calls mm-hmm. things it, like, north, the north southeast. Yeah. 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 But it's also bonkers in Boston. It's also yeah. Yeah. It's it's crazy. Boston. What a what a disaster. I was once navigating like my my GPS was taking me through Boston and it was like, okay, drive on this road and it just stopped. <laughs> like it was never there. <laughs> they had never connected. What? I don't know. I was like looking at the place where I was like, I could I can see where you want me to go. It had invented a road that I thought should be there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, it was like a neighborhood slow road and huh. it was like, now turn right onto this extremely fast thing. Literally there's a fence between you and it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very late for that meeting. The third one, which was like the opposite of the right answer, I just made that up. But the magnetic fields one, there's a recent study where they and they noted in the thing and he was like, I know we know the results of this study are controversial. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We controlled really, really well. It seems like there's an alpha wave response in the brain to changing magnetic fields that were made to simulate the strength and movement of Earth's magnetic field changes. But super, like, no conclusions can be really drawn from this. They maybe are seeing some alpha wave. Like They say they can reproduce it, but, like, uh, no sense that we could, like, sense that or, like, do anything with that. But I was like, that sounds like a good way to make a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you gotta, is there a dose-dependent response? That's the first thing you gotta look for as you increase the magnetic field and people's alpha waves get bigger. And then you're like, we've Mm. done it. We've determined that humans have another sense to stack on top of all the other ones. And then you go from there and you're like, we can move things with our minds. Whoa. The just metal, though, like Magneto, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm just thinking about how Magneto works. Let's move on. Hey, I, uh, <laughs> next up, we're going to take a short break, and then it's time for the fact off. Slasher Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money, a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. I said it before, and I'll say it again. It's a subscription-based world out there. 
video games, art making programs, food delivery services. These things, they all have dang subscription services to subscribe to. And I don't want to cast as- aspersions, dispersions, yeah. aspersions, one of those. Aspersions. Yeah. But it does seem like part of the subscription uh, business model is to get you to subscribe to something and then hope that you lose track of everything you subscribe to and just keep forking out 10 bucks a month until the sun mm-hmm. burns out. And you know yeah. what? That's actually a pretty good idea on their part, but it's not such a good idea for your wallet. Your money is like a bean. (laughs) You want to plant it in fertile soil. You don't want people carving off pieces of your bean all the time. That bean's not going to grow if if there's a constant drain on the bean. bean. That... Is where Rocket Money comes in. With Rocket Money, you can see all your subscriptions in one place, decide what you do and don't want, and cancel things with just a tap. Rocket Money will even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. And beyond, I mean beans, and beyond subscription canceling, <laughs> Rocket Money helps you build budgets, track your spending, and more. There's all kinds of ways to take care of those beans so they grow into a nice big bean plant. It has over 5 million users and it helps save members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. What would you do with 720 beans? I'd buy more beans. (laughs) (laughs) Different kind of bean, I guess. A a cheaper, more of a cheaper type of bean. You buy cheaper beans with your expensive beans. (laughs) Yeah, until I had an infinite amount of the cheapest bean you could possibly have. (laughs) Subscription (laughs) companies hate this one simple trick because... You figured out their plot, and now you can use that money for beans instead. Stop wasting (laughs) money on things you don't use and start using money on things like beans. Cancel your (laughs) unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. Welcome back, uh, Hank Buck Total. Sarah, you've got one point. Sam has got two. Stefan's oh. also got one. And I continue my streak of no points. Back on top, baby. Well, let's see if I can bring it back, everybody, now during the fact off where Sari and I will be competing to present the better fact to our other panelists here. So you each have a Hank Buck to award to us if you like our fact. And if you hate our fact, you can throw it into the fire. That we Ooh. have here at SciShow Tangent Studio. Whoa. We always keep a fire mm. going. You guys that's why you say that it. thing at the end, the wow. fire to be lighted or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's the You're fire. You're talking about the literal that's fire. The literal fire. In the it's office. very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it's really difficult to keep control of inside. We have to have a very large fume hood. Anyway, <laughs> the, so the person who's going to go first is the person who most recently got lost. Like a week and a half ago? Mm-hmm was the last time I felt lost. I right. mean, like, actually... Like, existentially? <laughs> oh, no, that's every day. <laughs> uh, but I felt lost navigation-wise yeah, yeah. because it was late at night driving home from a national park in New York oh. with three drunk people in the car. <laughs> One of them was not you. Yeah, you were okay. I right? was not, yes. And I, was, <laughs> wow. I had to navigate by myself in the dark. Oh, no. Uh, you were just hanging out drunk in a national park? There's a wedding. Um, yeah, but I felt very stressed out the entire time and drove like 10 to 15 miles below the speed limit. I was just in Minneapolis and we were trying to go get breakfast. And as occurs every time I walk out of a hotel, you look at your phone and it's like, it's this way. And you're like, but I have no idea where I am on the map. 
mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. which way is is left right which way is north south so i guess the, i would count that as lost mm-hmm. but you it's, found your way i did i like the last time i was lost lost like i i was like worried Mm-hmm. That's a totally different world, and like that, so rarely happens. Yeah, now. yeah. I do feel like yes. driving 15 miles below the speed limit is the hallmark of being stressed out and lost. Yeah. So maybe Sari wins in this situation. Okay. So that means like, what? who knows what it means? Oh, yeah. Never. Yeah. It means you get to choose. <laughs> I'll just go. So one of my favorite stories about navigational history is the longitude problem. Ah, with classic. Longitude. <laughs> do you guys all know it? No. No. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I have. Have some vague idea that we could figure out one of latitude or longitude and yeah. we were like yeah we know this one but we had no idea where we were on yeah. the earth the other way well mm-hmm. you just said the whole fact that's it okay i'm gonna take a nap now <laughs> no, there's more details latitude is the one that's easy to figure out because you can look up at the sun at noon and use a tool called a sextant which is like the triangle one mm-hmm. to reference like its angle to the horizon and like cross-reference that with a table to see where you are relative to the equator. The table has the angle and the date. Yeah. All all of these things include a lot of math, which I'm going to gloss over a little bit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sounds great. Um, So latitude, distance relative to the equator, like north and south, relatively easy to figure out because Mm -hmm. it's the sun has an angle to the horizon. That's predictable. Longitude, which is east to west, much harder to figure out Mm -hmm. because usually... Like even on land, they would have to take multiple observations to figure out where they were relative to other things. I think the problem with the east to west navigation is that there are more changing elements in the sky Mm -hmm. relative to your position. Mm -hmm. And so like our time zones are changing now and we have satellites that help us position ourselves. But if you were like a sailor on the ocean or walking across a continent, Mm -hmm. there aren't that many things that you could easily reference without doing a bunch of math Mm -hmm. to figure out where you were. And this was a big problem because then sailors would know where they were north or south, but not know how close to land they were or ah. things like that. And so they'd crash into rocks or they'd, mm, like, there were a bunch of shipwrecks because of this, basically, mm-hmm. because people didn't came up on land way too fast um, because they didn't realize where they were. They weren't using their damn eyes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sometimes sometimes you're, the, the, the land Foggy. is below the ground. <laughs> and oh. Sometimes it's the clouds are in front of you. All right. <laughs> so in 1714, this became a big enough problem that the British government offered a cash prize. Ooh, um, I love that. The, the Longitude Act they passed on July 8th. 1714 and they offered awards up to 20,000 pounds which is like millions of pounds in modern day uh-huh. depending on the accuracy of this method they just like did an open call can someone figure out how to do longitude yes if it's good we'll give you money and so historically astronomers were like the big people as far as navigation like this was a lot of the time where we would look at the stars use those to navigate and so Galileo and Haley Halley yeah, sure. The, the, the comet, comet guy? The comet guy. Okay. Yes. Proposed different like celestial navigation strategies. I think Galileo was really into Jupiter's moons. Halley was into something else. And then other people suggested this too, but the most famous person who worked on this tool was a clockmaker named John Harrison, who was just like this, they paint him as like this podunk country boy who was a carpenter, <laughs> right. who came up with a different idea that other people had experimented with called a marine chronometer, which is a clock that you would bring with you at sea. And so then you could look up and be like, oh, it's noon local time. What time does my clock say? And basically like calculate your time difference mm. and that will let you know your longitude. Okay. So it's like reverse mm. engineering time zone As long zone as you can keep your clock going. Yeah, as long as you can keep your you clock going. you can be like, 
the the sun is currently directly above my head, but my clock says it's one o'clock. Mm-hmm. So basically, the same way that like time zones work. You can be like, oh. I am a time zone away from that spot. And so the problem with clocks before this time was they were pendulum clocks. And like the way that clocks counted up seconds was a pendulum swinging Not back and forth. on a boat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But if you bring on that boat. on a ship, everything's going to get messed up really quickly. And so Hook, the, the dude who made Hook's Law, started experimenting Captain with Captain Hook. Not Captain Hook. It's Hook with an E. <laughs> Hook with but an Captain e. Hook liked clocks. Robert Hook was his name. Bob Hook. Okay. Bob, Not Captain Bob. Hook. That okay. was Captain Hook's name. Yeah. <laughs> Bob. Canonically. They came up at some point with the idea of spring-loaded clocks, like mm. the, the timekeeping element being a spring bouncing back and forth rather than a pendulum. Among other innovations, John Harrison came up with two like very, very chunky clocks like that would sit on a big table that had a spring system um, to keep track of time. And they mm-hmm. worked a little bit better than a pendulum clock at sea, but springs can still get shifted around with the flow of the waves. Mm-hmm. And then he made one, I think he included like some ball bearing systems and made it better, like made the springs more enclosed. And mm-hmm. that was H3 and it was still a pretty big box and it did better. But then he was like, it's still not good enough. This isn't going to win me my money. Mm-hmm. And he made a like a big pocket, like imagine the size of your face, sort of. Mm-hmm. And I think uh-huh. that is like the size of the pocket watch he invented with Ooh, a very yeah. small spring system. And that was H4. And that was the model that won him the Longitude Prize nice. because it was accurate. I think it lost less than a second per day, which huh. is really, really accurate for the time. So when you say marine chronometer, it's just a clock, right? Yeah, it's just a water clock. <laughs> but like it's just a spring, it's the clock, clock that works clock. when it's on water. Yep. Yeah, we had so we had clocks before, but like clocks got better then. Mm-hmm. Like because we did this, everyone's like, "Oh, actually, that's better in a lot of ways." You can make it the size of your face. Yep, that's basically pocket size. <laughs> if you got a really big pocket, when well, yeah. we had clocks back then, but they were all pendulum until until they started to mess with how to tell time on the or how to do yeah. this on the water. I think people were experimenting with non pendulum clocks before that. So like uh-huh. in my mind. Bob Hook is just super into springs. <laughs> he probably was interested in them and for a a good physical reason. Yeah. yeah. But he, springs are dope. Yeah, he likes springs. And so I think he was looking into a spring <laughs> clock without thinking about the, the ocean problem. Right. Mm-hmm. But John Harrison and a couple other people who go uncredited but didn't actually build the thing. Right. Um were, were some of the first people to apply mm. a non-pendulum clock idea to a, a big problem that the world was facing with yeah. navigation. But couldn't could you take a pendulum clock and put it on like a, like a, I don't know if gyroscopic is the right word, but like a table that is like weighted at the bottom and like free floating so that it like is always, does that make sense? So as the waves bounce the ship around, the clock stays oriented right up and down. I think that even like even just moving the ship from side to side, like if you're tacking, mm. like if you're going in a different direction, like it's going to pull on the pendulum to some extent. Yeah. So you'd have to keep the clock exactly still. Mm-hmm. And if the clock is staying still, is not on a ship. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's my turn now. So GPS, great and everything, but... I wrote a poem about it. <laughs> 19, yeah. In 1985, 15 years before GPS was available for civilian use, you could buy and install a car navigation system called the ETAC Navigator Ooh. that worked so well that the underlying techniques are still used in modern navigation software because the ETAC Navigator didn't need GPS. It had something much cooler. 
it had cassette tapes. Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> More cassette tapes. I love this. <laughs> so the ETAC Navigator was a, a product of Stan Honey and Nolan Bushnell, who set out to create a car navigation system that would require only a digital map, a compass, and some sensors. And with this system, the compass and sensors would keep track of the path that your car had gone, and then it would locate you based on that path inside of a map somewhere inside of this this tape. So it would figure out where you are as a technique called map matching. The navigator wouldn't give the turn-by-term directions that we're used to these days, but it would see your location and the streets around you, and it would give you an arrow pointing in the general direction of where you want to go, like crazy taxi. Uh, that was, of course, very advanced at the time. Uh, this was the 1980s, uh, so storing a whole bunch of digital map of a city uh, in a way that would tolerate all the vibrations and heat of a car was not a trivial problem. So they used special cassette tapes with a polycarbonate shell that could handle temperatures up to 105 degrees Celsius. Mm. And each cassette would hold 3.5 megabytes of data. Oh, so if fine. you wanted to have all of the Bay Area covered, for example, you would have to get six tapes that would cover... The entire Bay Area. You, and then you have to like around. get out of your car and like put a new one into the wherever the thing. No, was? it's inside the car with you. Okay, okay. Yeah. So like you're like, oh, I drove drove out of the area that I'm in. Switch the tape out. Like you got a new song. So you're tired of hearing Salt and Pepper. You got to switch out the tape to play like you know your Tiffany okay. album. So you could like buy different sets, like different map sets, yeah. and like and they were not they were not cheap. So the individual cassette tapes cost about thirty five dollars. But the system itself cost over $1,000 then, which would yeah. be like $3,000 oh. now. And they did not sell very many. They sold like <laughs> thousands of them. Yeah. So. Okay, I have a lot of questions. Okay. I only have one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> when you put a new tape in, how did you orient where you were? It oriented for you. How? It how? Knows where you, so it knows where you are based on the turns that you make. So if you're driving but, okay. on a road, and, and so you go, say... 30 feet and then you turn right and then you go another 30 feet and then you turn right and then you go another 100 feet and you turn left based on like where those points are right. you could figure out like there's only like you know after the first after like the third or fourth turn there's only one place where you could be okay it's the All next right. fad that's gonna come back <laughs> yeah cassette <laughs> tape that seems extremely inefficient and like the the wild thing I love that it has like a crazy taxi like you're going to this place and this this arrow points just in a direction. So just go that way, roughly. Uh, if anybody wants to see a picture of the ETAC navigation system, we'll put it up on scishowtangents.org. It's beautiful, green on green, just as you would expect. The screen is? Yeah. Nice. Uh, it's time for you to pick which one your favorite fact was. Oh, boy. Yeah. I forgot was it. Was it the la- the latitude, pr- the longitude, longitude problem? problem? Longitude problem, or was it the ETAC navigation system? <sighs> I have to say, I am tired of learning about new technology that cassette tapes were used for that I didn't know about. I'm annoyed that I didn't know. <laughs> that's, 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 that shouldn't. You shouldn't have to take that out on me. <laughs> Actually, though, the the boat thing reminds me of the pool tables on cruise ships. Yeah. Because they they move with yeah. the boat so that they stay level, so uh-huh. you can actually play pool. So I'm going to give it to Sarah. <laughs> uh, fine. <laughs> yeah, take out your aggression on Hank's facts. <laughs> what are you mad about, Sam? Oh, I'm not really mad about anything. Right now. <laughs> this is like one of those things where it's like 
you could have something about how science saved humanity or about these dumb tapes. <laughs> but the dumb tapes are so funny. And I love thinking about the, the dumb things that we used to do to tr- make up for the fact that we didn't know how computers were yet. So Hank gets mine. All right. Now it's time to ask the science couch where we ask listener questions to our couch of finely honed scientific minds. At L. Joel Rods asks, how did people navigate without stars, as in on cloudy or stormy nights? I think they just crossed their fingers that it would stop being cloudy and stormy. I mean, if you're in the middle of the ocean, like you could just keep going and then figure out if you're how far off course you are once the clouds are gone, right? Yeah, but then you might starve to death. Yeah, you could. You could. Oh, definitely true. could turn out real bad. During nighttime, that's not going to, like, there's nothing you can do. But during the daytime, wasn't there like a, a rock? Mm-hmm. Tell me about the rock, Terry. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you about this rock. Calcite has a very cool property called birefringence. Mm. So that light passing through calcite is split because of the way the crystal is oriented. So it forms a double image on it. So if you put, for example, calcite on top of a newspaper, all the words will, you'll see double, like slightly offset huh. from each other. Mm, it's cool. very cool. And the brightness of both images relative to each other depends on a property of light called polarization. Light is made up of waves mm-hmm. that oscillate. When all of the oscillations are pointing in the same direction, light is polarized around the sun there are concentric rings of polarized light with the sun at its center. Mm -hmm. And so with calcite, which is a crystal that depolarizes light, you can hold it up to the sky and determine the location of the rings around the sun. And this is when it's cloudy. Even when it's cloudy, yes, Mm -hmm. because the light from the sun is still traveling through. There's still sufficient light. The light pattern on the calcite and through the calcite varies depending on the orientation of the stone relative to the light polarization from the sun. And I think when the images got more aligned or they got more equal in brightness, then you know that you're pointing more directly at the sun Mm. because the polarized lights are rings around it and they're hitting the stone in a more equal way. Mm. So this is what we think was mentioned in like Norse mythology or like Viking times Mm. called a a sunstone that they used for navigation. Uh. So in these texts, there's this like a bunch of passages as far as I can tell that was like, we used the sunstone and found our way home. Mm-hmm. You can also use a sunstone to turn your uh, gloom into a blossom. So, mm-hmm. is that yeah. a Pokemon joke? It's Pokemon <laughs> yes. <or>? <laughs> the way the series is with music, I'm like with Pokemon. That is a better thing to be that way about. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to ask the Science Couch, you can follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we'll tweet out the topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you at Becca Sitlali at MiniMarker3 and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this week. Final scores. Stefan and I are tied for last with one. Sari and Sam are tied for first with two. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's easy to do that. First, you can leave us a review wherever you listen. That helps us know what you like about the show. And we're going to be looking at iTunes reviews for topic ideas for future episodes. Second, tweet out your favorite moment from this show. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, just tell people about us. Thank you for listening. I'm Hank Green. I'm Sari Riley. I'm Stefan Chin. And I'm Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the awesome team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz who also edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroko Matsushima. Our sound designer is Joseph Tunamedish. Our social media organizer is Victoria Bongiorno, and we couldn't make any of this without our patrons on Patreon. Thank you. And remember, the mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be lighted.
one more thing. A two-year study published in 2014 in the journal Frontiers in Zoology concluded that dogs can sense the Earth's magnetic field and seem to prefer to line themselves up with its north-south axis while pooping. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before, but I, I think it's going to be fake. You know, I took it with a little bit of a grain of salt, too. So this isn't always observed every time a dog poops, and they think that's because dogs get thrown off when there's disturbances in the electromagnetic field. <laughs> so they don't know which way to poop anymore. Oh, that, that's why they go around in circles a bunch? They're like, whoa, what the hell? Yeah. Maybe it is. Maybe you cracked it open. 